0: grab your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel 21. 2 Samuel 21, uh, we are slowly inching our way towards the end of David's biography, which actually bleeds in the first Kings. Um, And we've been looking at a series of really uh, complicated uh, and unusual passages of Scripture, and and this week is really no different. Uh, This is a passage that uh, will certainly stand out to us as being something maybe we've, we've never read before. If we have read it, we don't remember it. Uh, 2 Samuel uh, 21, uh, page 295 of your Pew Bibles. Um, if you will stand with me out of reverence for God's word. We are going to start in verse 15 and work our way to the end of the chapter. The writer of 2 Samuel writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, There was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbi-benab, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sebekai the Hushathite, struck down Soph who was of the descendants of the giants. And there was, again, war with the Philistines at Gath. And Elhanan, the son of Ja'er, Oregim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was, again, war at Gath, uh, where there was a man of great stature and had six fingers on each hand, six toes on each foot, 24 in number. He also was descended from the giants, and when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask every time we gather that you would transform us by your word, with your spirit, for your kingdom. In other words, we look at this important passage, though unique particularly to the modern uh, ear. Uh, may we see ultimately it's about jesus so would you be so kind as to help us this morning there are giants in the land and may we see them fall may i decrease so that you can increase name your son we pray amen Make you seated well i'm willing to bet when you gather for worship this morning You were getting ready, and for some of you, your wives were telling you to go back in there and change. Again, because the first round didn't work out too well for you, right? Uh, I'm willing to bet if someone asked you, uh, tell me every story in the Bible about giants. You would say, oh, that's easy. I learned that as a little kid. His name is Goliath, and David threw down with him and and won, right? And that that would be it. We read this story, you're thinking... I did not see that one coming not only is is is, is there story about giants, but there are multiple giants from the Philistines uh, facing israel this This is a passage i again I suspect that many of us are unfamiliar with that that the theme of giants is one that is common within scripture well let 's just, just hop right into this what you 're going to see is basically there are four vignettes here right so you have Four Hebrew men slaying four different giants. That's the way this passage breaks down. But what we need to see is how these giants were a pressing problem in Israel. Remember, this isn't chronology here. Uh, what you have started in chapter 21 to the end of 2 Samuel are, is a thematic approach to the storytelling. So it isn't that one battle there's a giant. 2 days later another battle with the giant right but rather is is over a period of time there are these four battles laid out for us by the narrator and so so this problem with giants was a pressing problem for Israel but in order to face them in order to conquer them in order to destroy them it required a collective effort among the hebrews So let's look at the first battle here, starting in verses 15 to 17. What you'll find is the way the stories are laid out, the first battle and the fourth battle are the longest. The second and the third are the shortest. It's really written in a chiastic sort of approach. The giant is named Ishbi Benob. So if you're looking for a name for your new cat, let me say, first of all, you should get something better than a cat. But if that doesn't work, Ishbi-Banab might be a good one for you. Ishbi-Banab is slayed by Abishai, the son of Zerui. If you've been with us in our study of David, you've come across this name. He'll return later on in the narrative. Abishai is Joab's brother and is a nephew of David. Now, you'll notice in the narrative there, uh, in verses 15 to 17, that, that the Israel goes out to, to slay the giants. In fact, you'll notice verse 15 that phrase, there was war again between Philistines and Israel. That phrase introduces us to each new battle. So you'll see in verse 15, you see in verse 18, 19, and 20. That phrase used four times to describe four different giants, four different battles, four different heroes. Nevertheless, that David goes with his men out in battle, uh, contrast to what he did with the Bathsheba narrative. He goes out, but he is becoming wearisome. And as a result... This giant, Ishbi benob goes out to slay David. That is the prize, right? If you kill David, Israel will fall. And so what his men have to do is protect David. Their number one job is to protect David. So so uh, Abishai comes and to protect David slays the giant. And then after that threat is, is taken care of, they tell David, you ain't got to go home, but you got to get up out of here, right? You are a liability to your military, right? Uh, Lead us from afar. uh, We'll fight for you, but we can't protect you and fight fight the Philistines uh, at the same time. And so David then is retired from action as a result. That's the first battle against Ishbi Benab, the giant. The second battle, verse 18, very short. You see it there uh, again. uh, After this, there was war again. Philistines at God, there's that language. Then Sibakai, the Heshathai, struck down Soth. Who is one of the descendants of the giants. Remember that final phrase about descendants of the giants. So the giant's name is Sof, which means tall. That makes sense, right? <laughs> you know, he, uh, 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 he must have been a big baby, I guess. I, I, I don't know, uh, metaphorically and literally, maybe. Uh, the hero here is a Hushathite by the name of Sibekai. All right, we don't know anything else about this guy, but he, here he is, a slaying a giant. Third battle in verse 19 uh, is, is in uh, States there was war again with the Philistines at Gob uh, we don't really know where Gob was although a number of options have been presented Elhanan the son of Jair or Agim, the Bethlehemite so it's interesting isn't it that you have David's nephew slaying the first giant and a perhaps a cousin relative or, or a neighbor of David slays the third giant he is from Bethlehem as David was he slays Goliath the Gittite uh oh uh oh, right? So I want you to say with me there's a contradiction in the Bible. You cannot believe the Bible. Let's go home or crack a barrel. Amen, right? Right? I mean, I just, I just, I don't know what to do with that, right? I mean, clearly, if, if, if there's this contradiction in the Bible, you should cast the Bible to the side. It is untrustworthy, can't get its own history, right? Look, can I just say something? If this supposed contradiction is enough to make you question the, the, the consistency of the Bible, your faith in the Bible wasn't that strong to begin with, right? Okay, Can I give you just two options what to do with this supposed contradiction? The first is there are, now get this, Listen to me really, really fast, OK? There might have been two giants named Goliath. Right, that was hard to come up with, wasn't it, right? Right? I mean, I mean that's, it's, that's possible. If Goliath was a great giant, he was a hero, it makes sense that perhaps another giant was named Goliath in his stead, right? I shared with you last week my favorite book in the whole wide world is Beowulf. The book is called Beowulf. It's a story about Beowulf. And guess what? There are two Beowulfs in the story, right? Not that that makes the story any easier to understand, right? So this, this, this makes complete sense to me. Another option would actually be to use the Bible to help us understand the Bible. There's a novelty, and although we 've not followed the, the parallels in First Chronicles in our study of David, a lot of the stories found in First Second Chronicles are found in First Samuel to Second Kings. The Chronicles is a summation of that, and there's reasons for that we, we, we just don't have the time to get into it. But in 1 Chronicles 20 is the parallel of what it is that we read here. So you meet the same giants and the same heroes, told slightly different because there's a slightly different perspective and, and purpose there. But what the writer of 1 Chronicles tells us is that the giant slayed here isn't Goliath the Gittite, the one that David slayed, but rather it was David's, or Goliath's brother. His name is Lami, L-A-H-M-I. You could read it there in 1 Chronicles 20 on your own time. But nevertheless, we have a Bethlehemite who has some connection with David, likely slaying yet another giants. The fourth battle, verses 20 to the 21, we see another giant. We, we get more details with this one. There was great war again at Gath. There was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand, six toes in each foot, 24 numbers, so 24 phalanges, hand and foot combined and he was descended from the giants. Now, now, I don't think this means all the giants have this unique genetic uh, peculiarity, six fingers, six toes, all that sort of stuff. Uh, because we know there are people who are not giants who uh, inherit this genetic uh, issue, right? So, so this isn't – it's strange in one sense, but it's really medically speaking it's not, not – all, all, all that strange. This is a real phenomenon. Um, but but this John in particular had this unique detail about him. And you'll notice in verse twenty one, his personality is a lot like Goliath. He taunted Israel, right? Much like Goliath would come out each day, taunt Israel until we meet our hero, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. So you'll notice that the first giant slayed in this narrative is David's nephew. The last one is David's nephew. I think the author is playing with us here a little bit because remember it was David's brothers who went out to battle in the Goliath story they were too afraid but it's their sons at least two of their sons who had the courage under David's leadership to slay giants so there you have it four giants slayed by four heroes of Israel while David is too wary to face them alone now what do we do with this what in the world do we do with this? For some of us, this is just strange. It's part of the Bible, we just find strange. We don't know what to do with it. So what do we do? how do we handle this? And what does this have to do with the price of bread in China? Well, one of the things that we need to do is we need to avoid making a common mistake when we read these stories. If we could go back and borrow from Goliath, one of the things we do is we make the giant stories all about you and me. This is to say that we're the center of the story. You've heard this sermon before. In fact, you could Google uh, Goliath sermon and you're going to get this sermon. Uh, The first 8,000 that pop up is going to be the sermon. It's all about how you can slay your giants. You know, giants of like poverty and sickness and loneliness and depression. Giants. What you need are the five smooth stones of faith and love and I don't know, whatever it is you want to make up. The problem is that's not the point of the story. I know this is hard for Americans to hear, but you and I are not the center of the Bible. Jesus is. And so unless we interpret Scripture with Jesus in mind, we are misinterpreting Scripture. This is not about how you can slay your giants or how you can calm your storms or whatever metaphor you want to use. It's about Jesus and Jesus alone. So in order to get there, we need to have a Bible study, okay? So, so I hope you're sitting down. We're going to have ourselves an old school Bible study. So you're going to have to, to follow with me. We've we got to do a bit of a Bible study to get up to this text, and then we'll find Christ there in the end. There are, for the sake of oversimplification, but pretty, pretty accurately to say, that there are three eras in the Bible whereby we meet giants. The first is the deluge, Genesis chapter six, right? This is the flood of Noah. Uh, We don't have time to go back and look at Genesis six. You could read it on your own time. The first four verses make this very clear. Those familiar with the passage may remember the phrase that this was the day when the sons of God uh, came into the daughters of, uh, of men and they produced the Nephilim. That word Nephilim is a transliteration from the Hebrew, and there's a lot of debate as to what all that text means. For the sake of argument, as we'll see here in a minute, the biblical writers at least associated the Nephilim with giants. Now, you can can translate that a number of ways, but for our purposes, what we see then is a race of giants on the earth that God responded with judgments, and he judged the giants and destroyed them through the flood. So the story of the flood is how God saved a man and his family, but judged the rest of humanity. That's the story of the flood. So when Noah gets off the ark, the earth has been cleansed. Between Abel and the Nephilim, the earth was bloody. The land was crying out. It It was stained with blood. God washes it with the flood and we get a new Adam with three sons and a new garden, right? He builds the vineyard and all that sort of stuff. The second time we meet giants in the Bible is the conquest, the story of Moses and Joshua. Now, here is where the, the, the a theology of giants is really developed. Both Moses and Joshua, between the wilderness and the promised land, uh, confront giants. Let me put them into three categories. We could look at others. Again, we're trying to keep this simple um, because I wanted to get you out in time for breakfast. The first giant group we meet are the Anakim, the Anakim. Uh, You may remember the story of when uh, Moses sends in uh, the 12 spies and 10 of them come back and they say, yo, this ain't going to work out. Why? There are giants in the land. And these giants are the Anakim. And here they are on the border of the promised land, and they're convinced we can't face them. Two of those spies, Joshua and Caleb, say, well, we got God on our side. We can face the giants. And so God uh, uses them in the next generation. So when Joshua leads Israel in Moses' place into the promised land, they face the Anakim, and they wipe out the Anakim. Now remember, the Anakim, the sons of Anak, are giants. This is made very clear. You can go back to, I believe it is, yeah, here it is, the the Numbers passage I had up there a second ago. Notice the connection between the Anakim and the Nephilim. So so the writer wants us to see the connection, which is why we're doing this Bible study, between the deluge and the conquests. Giants in the land of Noah, giants in the land uh, there in time of Moses and Joshua. Well, the good news is Joshua and Caleb together, uh, along with the rest of Israel, when they entered to the promised land, they faced the Anakim and they destroyed them. What they feared uh, was nothing to fear when they had faith to face the giants. Okay? The second group of giants we see during the conquest is a group called the Amorites. The Amorites. Now, we don't have time to go into a lot of detail. Let me give you just one passage of scripture that makes it clear uh, for me uh, that they were giants. This is Amos, or a later prophet. He describes them as having the height of cedars and strong as oaks. So they would have qualified, no doubt, for the NBA. Um, But this is clearly language and there's more passages we look at. We just don't have the time. Can I show you something interesting? You're still in 2 Samuel 21, right? Go back to verse two. We looked at this last week. remember the story of the Gibeonites? And we're all wondering who in the world are the Gibeonites? And and, and they, their story begins in the story of Joshua. They deceived the Israelites. So Joshua enters through the oath with the Gibeonites. So the Gibeonites are in the promised land. Saul, a tall guy, tries to wipe them out. Right? And that's where our story went last week. Look at verse 2 of of, uh, uh, 2 Samuel uh, 21. It says, So the king called the Gibeonites, David, and spoke to them. Now, here's the editorial note. In case, to a reader, you forgot who the Gibeonites were, here you go. The Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, they're Gentiles, but of the remnant of who? Amorites. So you remember what we saw in the story of the Gibeonites? Two things. One, they are descendants of giants. Secondly, you remember the phrase they used to describe what will happen to the sons of Saul that they hung? They will be food for the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. You see it later in chapter 21. You remember, that's the phrase Goliath used to describe David. So it's not an action. Remember, this isn't chronology. This is thematic approach to narrative telling. So it's not an accident. We, we get this giant language in the first uh, uh, 17 verses, or 14 verses rather, of 2 Samuel 21. And then we get a series of narratives about giants. Among those giants are the Amorites. One more group for sake of time, and that is the Rephaim, the Rephaim. Uh, the word Rephaim just means giants. And this word is found over 20 times, usually in reference to Israel's conquest of the promised land. The, the most infamous, if you, if you want to use the word, uh, of the Rephaim, is a man by the name of King Og of Bashan. His bed is described, I'm using the Holman Christian Standard Bible because it didn't use cubits, whatever that is, right? Uh, but it comes out and it says his bed was 13 feet long. I bet his feet still dangled at the end. He's one of those weirdos that like your feet. To da- Are you one of those weirdos that like your feet to dangle at the end? I bet King Og was one of them, right? 13 foot of uh, bed, feet still dangling at the end. That's the way I like like to imagine that. That's a big boy, right? That, that, that is a, a, a big boy. Um, he would just ruin basketball. I'm telling you. Um, what we need to see, however, is that throughout the conquest narrative, When Israel is told to go into Canaan and wipe everybody out, that almost always corresponds with where giants dwell. So what you need to see again is the Bible wants us to see the connection between the deluge and the conquest. In the deluge, God wiped out the giants. In the conquest, what does Moses and Joshua do? They enter to the promised land to wipe out the giants. Moses and Joshua are types of Noah's. I can prove it to you in one other area. We don't have time for it, but I'm going to give it to you for free. This, this is free, not in my notes. It's because I took it out. The word ark is used in two primary passages in the Bible, Genesis 6 and 9, to describe Noah's ark, obviously. The other is in early in Exodus to describe the basket Moses was put in that landed him in Pharaoh's household. You remember the story, Right? So just as God judged humanity uh, by a man in an ark, so too God will redeem Israel by a man and an ark, and this man and an ark will face giants. So what Joshua and the boys are doing is they are cleansing the land of the influence of giants. That connection is made very clear, and, and, and we can't get to David until we've seen all this sort of stuff. Okay. One last. Era by which we see giants play a prominent role is, of course, the monarchy, particularly the monarchy of David. Now, in order to see this, let's go back to your boy Joshua, okay? In Joshua 11, we read this, there was none of the Anakim left. Now, remember the Anakim are giants, the sons of Anak. So Joshua says, look, we, we got victory. The giants are no longer in the land. What we feared, we conquered by faith. We have defeated the giants in the land. Um, However, notice where the Anakim are, the giants are. They are in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. Where are those cities? Those are three prominent cities of the Philistines. Now, this is why when we read in 1 Samuel 17, the story of Goliath, where is Goliath from? He is from Gath. You come to 2 Samuel 21. Where are these giants from? They are Philistines from the city of Gath. Are you you trekking with me where this is going? The stories of Noah with the giants bleeds into the story of Moses and Joshua in the promised land. Which now bleeds into the story of David. In this context, David is continuing in a line of of God's people who are called to conquest. They are called to clear the land of giants. Noah did it throughout the earth on a boat, Joshua did it with a sword in the promised land. And as David extends the borders of Israel, it is no wonder then that in part of that work, he faces giants. So although this text may seem strange to American 21st century hearer, this makes sense in light of the biblical narrative. "There are giants in the land, and it is the people of God who must come and slay them." And if you still want more evidence of this, notice how the passage ends in verse 22, "These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David." And his men. So, what do we do with this? Why? Why, why does any of this matter? Can I give you uh, two points of application? Two points of application. The first is Christ. Christ. Although specific giant language is rare in the New Testament, there are certainly remnants in it. For example, in Luke 11, Christ describes himself like David who, uh, who overcomes the strong man, takes his armor like David did to Goliath. More specifically, what we see, particularly in the synoptic gospels, but in the gospels in general, is that Jesus enters into the promised land, and his his role is to cleanse it of unrighteousness and to establish a new kingdom. One of the primary narratives by which Jesus does that is through the expulsion of demons and and, and other supernatural entities, right? So he's going to cleanse the temple, he's going to confront idolatry, he's going to deal with the Pharisees and Sadducees and, and the scribes, and he's going to Cast out demons. They know Jesus comes to conquer. Jesus comes to clear the land. Jesus comes to establish a kingdom. So, what you get in the story of Jesus is essentially an invasion. He comes to take, he comes to subdue, he comes to liberate. No wonder, then, in this light, we see Jesus as a true embedder of the giant slayers. Consider, for example, Noah. Through Noah, God judged humanity, but he saved a man. In Christ, what it is we see is God saves humanity, but he judges a man. He's a true and better Noah. In Moses, what we get is a man who escapes infanticide from a tyrant uh, only to return to liberate the Jews. So too, Jesus comes out of Egypt. Remember, his time he spent in Egypt— He gives his followers a new law, like the Sermon on the Mount, and he serves as the prophet foretold by Moses. Like Joshua, both of them share the same name. Jesus is the Greek word for Joshua, which is the English word for Yeshua, the Hebrew word meaning the Lord saves. Joshua conquered a land by clearing it of idolatry and giants. Jesus conquers sin, Satan, and the grave by suffering under its weight and to overcome it by his resurrection. Jesus then is a true and better Noah. He's a true and better Moses. He's true and better Joshua. He is a true and better David. As the royal shepherd of Israel, David wars against giants and Israel's enemies. He, he establishes worship in Jerusalem, and he builds a kingdom. Jesus, on the other hand, our royal shepherd, has already conquered our enemies. He has established an eternal kingdom, and he sits upon an eternal throne. Christ, then, is a true and better David. So then when we come to this text, what we see is is David might be a giant slayer, but he is insufficient in slaying all the giants. That is why the first narrative and the last narrative is so important. David went out to war against the giants, but he became wary. He alone can't do it. So he's got to get men to help him. And at the end, again, we see is that these giants were slain by David and his servants. In walks Christ, and he conquers, he subdues, he destroys, he judges all on his own. Though everyone turned against him, he overcame it by being raised from the dead. Christ is the ultimate giant slayer. This leads to the second point. If we see Christ, we should then see missions. Mission. Throughout the various moments in history, the people of God have been called to war against giants. We've seen the deluge, we've seen the conquest, we've seen the monarchy. we come to the New Testament, we see it is the charge of the church to do the same. Though our enemies are defeated, Yet they still continue to wage war against us. Satan, though defeated, continues to accuse, to lie, and to destroy. Sin, though uh, defeated, continues to decay, it continues to ruin, and it continues to burden. Death, though defeated by Christ at his resurrection, continues to haunt, continues to rob, continues to take. These enemies, Christ has overcome. Yet they still roar, yet they still prowl, yet they still pray. This is why you and I, as the church of Jesus Christ, are called to missions. The calling of the church is to invade. The calling of the church is to conquer. The calling of the church is to overcome. It is no accident then than when a cobbler in England put up a map in his cobbler shop, and every day he would pray, Lord, there are too many who don't know Christ. He agreed to organize a Baptist mission movement by which he himself will go. And it took nine years for the first convert. But when the first giant slayed, he established a church. He established a university. He translated the Bible. He slayed giants. Why? Because he didn't see the work as too difficult. He saw giants who could be conquered. We are called to overcome We are called to invade, not with weapons, not with votes, not with parades, not with mobs, not with keyboards. We are called to invade with the gospel of Christ. And this is the problem I have with effeminate Christianity. We have lost both the ability and the vocabulary of warfare. You and I are at war. And for far too long, Christians thought we were safe inside the borders of the United States. All the while, each passing generation, we've seen the decay of a culture and of our neighbors because we thought we were on vacation when we were supposed to be at war. The church is called to war. Missions is a lot like facing giants. The task looks impossible, the enemy looks intimidating. But just as a sling in the arm of a courageous man of faith is sufficient to slay a giant, so too the gospel in the heart of a courageous believer is sufficient, equally sufficient to slay the giants of our age. After all, isn't this what Jesus told us? In John chapter 16, The eve of his own execution, the high priestly prayer, the upper room discourse. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. That's good news. You have peace despite what may be going on in your life. Why? Because peace is not based on circumstances. It's rooted in Christ. But notice the next language. In the world, you will have tribulation. Notice that the Christian will have peace in Christ because they are hidden in Christ despite the tribulation and suffering they will face from the world. Notice Jesus understands that if you're a follower of Jesus, you possess peace, but you will need to possess a sword. We are at war. There will be tribulation. Here's the good news. Don't worry about that. I've overcome the world. I've already slayed the giants. There is nothing to fear. I have overcome But this task cannot be done alone. David courageously faced Goliath, but was too weak to face the rest. Even he needed the help of the people of God. So do we. So do we. We need to understand, as East Frankfurt Baptist Church, and as Christians more broadly speaking, the task sent before us Is a difficult one. The problem is, for far too long, we have sat comfortably in our pews, we looked out of the world and said, There are giants in the land, we dare not go. We dare not invade. We are too weak. Our nation is becoming more secular and therefore less coherence. There are giants in the land. Our neighbors are confused about basic biology and reality. There are giants in the lands. Our cities have grown violent. Our politics has grown toxic. Our culture has turned wicked. Why? There are giants in the lands. COVID has rocked the local church and has divided us by political loyalties. Why? There are giants in the lands. Anemic Christians lack the courage to share their faith and the depth to even understand it. There are giants in the land. Consumerism threatens our worship. Technology threatens our discipleship. Academics threatens our faith. The culture threatens our hope. We live in a land of giants. Baptisms are down. Fears are up. Families are faltering, fathers are absent, communities are crumbling, souls are dying. There are giants in the lands. Who among us here today has the courage to fight? Who among us here has the strength to go on? Who here has the courage and the faith to march forward? We already know there are giants in the land, but giants are made to fall. And I realize this task set before us is great and our foe is quite mighty. The good news is you and I have nothing to fear. God has in his word revealed he has used lesser men to face giant foes. And by his grace, for his glory, through his spirit, armed with his gospel, I pray he will again use lesser men and women to do it again. Don't you? Why do we sit around and complain when we are called to stand up and go to war? There are giants in the land. But you cannot do this with halfway doing Christianity. You cannot do it by worshiping when it is convenient. You cannot do it with an anemic prayer life. You cannot do it with unrepentant sin in your life. You cannot do it without your Bible open. You cannot do it without the people of God. Why? Like David, we are too weary. We are too weak. But together, giants will What's the old saying we tell kids and we see in the movies? The good news is, the bigger the giant, the harder they will fall. It's no different than the giants that we may face today. It's not about you. It's about the mission of Christ that we were called to be on. Who here will rise to the occasion? Who here has the faith to step forward? Who here will march and not cease until the job is completed? correct.